Please open your Bibles to James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. If you're using the Pew Bible, you will find this morning's reading on page 1011. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, which is the translation that Mr. Jeremy Fuller will be preaching from this morning. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word. Please keep your Bibles open to uh, the book of James, and let's pray. Father, this is your day. I pray that you would glorify yourself through the preaching of your word. May you pour your spirit out on your servants, that we would understand what you have to say to us today, and that Christ would be exalted, and you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So in my third year of art school, I had a great opportunity. I had the opportunity to take a class that was taught by famous artists. And of course, I eagerly signed up for this class. It sounded like such a great opportunity. However, uh, within a few weeks of applying for the class, the head of my department came to me and said, Jeremy, we're not going to let you into this class. Uh, We decided it's not a good fit. And the reason why is, well, you're not a good learner. And that, uh, it wasn't that I was slow to learn. It was that I, wasn't a good, I was a slow listener. I didn't take in the lessons that they were teaching me. I didn't heed the instructions of my teachers. I didn't take them at their word, or I challenged them. And of course, my response to this was, well, that's not true. But in reality, it was true. I, like many young people, was completely assured of my own knowledge and completely skeptical about what others had to say. And I ask you, uh, consider this. Is this a good quality for a student to have? Or parents, is this a good quality that that you seek after in your children? No, of course not. We want our children to be obedient. We want them to listen to us, and we want them to do what we say. Yet, ironically, at the same time, don't we tend to gravitate towards characters who are rebellious and self-willed? We like Ferris Bueller. We like Bart Simpson. We want to be wild stallions that are free and uncontrolled by anyone. After all, isn't this the American way? To be fiercely independent, to listen to no one, to follow your heart? But is this the way of the Christian? Is this what God calls for his people to be before him? The short answer, of course, is no. We are not called to be wild at heart. We are called to be tame. The people of God were likened to docile lambs and not wild stallions. And there is one word which Jesus uses to refer to his people in their relationship with him. 
He calls them disciples. Now, what is a disciple? A disciple is a devoted teacher. In the ancient world, it referred to someone who devoted their lives to the particular brand of teaching or practice of some well-known teacher. And this is a devotion which Jesus took to, for his disciples and intensified it. He called them to follow him, not just in his teaching, but in his life, and even if in his death, if that was necessary. He said to be his sheep, not his unruly stallions. So the Christian call is to be mild-mannered disciples. Now, in the book of James so far, we have seen what it means to be a follower of Christ in the midst of trials. He has called us to rejoice in the trials and recognize what they produce. And we have also seen answer the question of who is responsible for our own, our own temptation. We're responsible for our own temptation. Both of these two aspects of the Christian life involve setting aside the clamor of our self-will for the sake of submitting to God, don't they? A principle which James now brings to the forefront of his discussion. It is here that we see what posture the Christian is to take before their Lord and God and what implications this has for life. Now, as you might expect with my introduction, this has something to do with how we listen and how we speak. And uh, this idea of what we, how well we listen and what we do with our words is not a new one to the Bible. Uh, as you'll, if you'll remember from my beginning of the series, I mentioned that the book of James is sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament. And because, this is because it talks about certain similar uh, wisdom issues that Proverbs does in similar language. Consider, for example, Proverbs twelve fifteen: The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Or consider Proverbs 29, 1. A man who does not listen after many strong words are spoken to him will be destroyed all at once and without help. Or one more, Proverbs 10.19, where there are many words, wrongdoing is unavoidable, but one who restrains his lips is wise. So like the book of Proverbs, James is calling, saying that the Christian should be one who is slow to listen, no, sorry, quick to listen and slow to speak. Well, why is this? Well, first of all, to be quick to do something means to be eager to do it. And conversely, to be slow to do something is to be hesitant or cautious or unwilling to do so. Therefore, the Christian is called to be that avid, good listener. Now, we all likely know somebody who, with whom conversation can be a constant challenge. Perhaps they, uh, you cannot get in a word edgewise. They control the con- conversation. Or maybe you have a friend or family member who is just unwilling to listen to anything. They stop their ears. They don't want to hear anything. They want to do their own will. They are that proverbial brick wall. Now, what, and, and the connection between listening and talking is, if you're busy talking, can you listen well? No, of course not. James is saying here that what is appropriate for the Christian is to be a good listener and a person that heeds advice, and also someone who is cautious with their words. First and foremost, this refers to our relationship with God. We are to be quick to heed his word to us, more so than any other voice in the world, even our own voice. 
even to shut our mouths before him. Shutting our mouths, recognizing that he is the one who talks, and we are the ones who listen. But at the same time, God calls us to serve one another as we submit to him, which we can do with our words and with our ears. Consider what uh, this, the prerogative which Jesus gave to his disciples to serve one another. Paul echoes this in Philippians when he calls the Philippian Christians to selfless service, just like Christ did. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. We can do this with our words and our ears, can't we? As we stop our mouths and listen to what others have to say. So listen often. Be slow to talk. How does this play out in your life? Are you a talker or a listener? Do you heed the advice of others and especially of God? Is your heart eager for sound advice and wisdom, or is your head full of your own talk, your own ideas, your own desires, or the idea that you have it all together? Now, to be sure, there is a time to talk, and there is a time to hold one tongue. But we see here that the Christian prerogative is to be a good listener to God first, and then to man as well. After all, as a friend of mine used to say, we have two ears and only one mouth. So we're called to listen twice as much as we talk. So being slow, quick to talk and slow to speak. Following this discussion on this matter, James warns against another behavior that is connected with how we listen and speak. The issue of anger. Now, how is anger connected to our words and our ears. Well, anger oftentimes has the same root, doesn't it? The same root of self-centeredness and pride of not listening to someone. One could even say that anger is a more intense form of this root. Basically, the idea that it's all about me. And while there might be a place for right anger, the truth of the matter is, is that when we get angry, it very quickly spirals out of control, doesn't it? So it turns into something bad and very quickly becomes about me rather than being about something right or wrong. For an example, uh, take the riots that we have seen very recently in uh, news. Uh, people protest the death of several men at the hands of the police. And whether or not those began as a real concern for justice, they soon spiraled out of control and turned into something ugly and sinful as people destroyed the property of those who had nothing to do with the events that they were protesting. See, such anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, the Christian, we as God's people, must be on guard against it in our lives and be slow to rush to it. Now, somebody might ask, what about righteous anger? What about that cause that is just to be angry over? Well, I'd like to point out to you that God, whose anger is never unjust, who has every right to pour his wrath out on us, is slow to anger. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That is Psalm 103.8. Or also, I found this very helpful. This is Matthew Henry's comment on this section of James. 
Whereas men often pretend zeal for God and his glory in their heat and passion, let them know that God needs not the passion of any man. His cause is better served in mildness and meekness than by wrath and fury. And thank God that he has not been as quick to anger with us as we tend to be with others. Because of God's mercy, let us, those of us who have been shown God's patience and long-suffering, let us put away all short-temperedness, all haughty conceit, all the irritability and belittlement of others that we are guilty of. So I want you to consider, what is it that gets your blood boiling? What is it really angers you and stirs you up? Why does it make you angry? Consider the question what God asked Jonah, what right do you have to be angry? Then consider this. Consider what right God has to be angry with you. And consider how he hasn't been, but instead he sent his son to die for your sins while you were yet his enemy. When you were yet his enemy, he made you his child. Based off of that knowledge, then again consider, in light of God's grace, what right do you have to be angry? Anger does not produce the righteousness of God. It does not produce God-focus or others-focus, but it produces self-focus. That self-centered, self-willed pride that is contrary to the life in Christ. One of meek and mild submission to our God. And I will go on to say that at the heart of the matter, all sin is a self-centeredness. All sin comes from the same place. A heart that is devoted to self rather than being devoted to God. But Christian, you are not your own. You have been bought at a price. Not to serve yourself any longer, but to serve God. To be devoted to him alone. In light of this, James, in this word, calls us to repentance. To turn from our old ways and turn to follow God again. Now, repentance usually involves two parts. You have a turning from something to something else. And in the book of James, we, hear, we see here that we are called to put off our old ways, all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and instead to receive his word. We are to take off that which is disgusting and defiled, like a ruined garment caked with filth. Christian, if you have, you have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, why would you seek that which defiles you? It is like when you were a kid and you just had a bath and your mother cries, don't go outside, don't get in the mud. You, you just took a bath. Why would you return to that which you have been saved from? And as for rampant wickedness, imagine a garden overgrown with weeds. Or imagine Godzilla rampaging through a city. What you have here is uncontrolled sin, sin without restraint. There is no place for this in the Christian life anymore. You are a disciple of Christ. You are controlled by Christ, not by sin. He has called you to die to yourself and to live for him. There is no place for uncontrolled sin in your life anymore. Therefore, James calls you and I to turn from it and turn to something else, to live that life which is now ours as new creations of Christ. So what then? Well, 
then submit yourself to God. James will later on in the book of in, in his book in chapter four give this great image of what repentance and resistance of sin looks like. He says, Submit yourself to God, therefore. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He, here James calls you to turn from your filthiness and rampant wickedness and to receive meekly the implanted word. And by implanted word, James is certainly referring to the word of God, that teaching of the apostles which they received through instruction and through the ministry of God's word, to sit at Jesus' feet and to humbly learn from him, to humbly learn from your Savior and your God. This right here is the opposite of self-will and self-centered pride. This the opposite of what leads to defilement and unrestrained wickedness. This is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Now, what does meekness mean? Well, to give a short definition, it means to recognize that when you're before God, that he is the master, not you. He is the one in charge, and you are to follow him in humble deference. And as I said before, this does kind of run against the grain of our nature. We don't like to submit, do we? We want to be king, not God. We would rather be God in our own lives than submit to him. But I really want you to consider what James says here about the implanted word. What does he say? He calls it that word which is able to save your soul. What, the word that is able to save your soul. Do you understand the gravity of that? Christian, I ask you to consider how you, became, how you came to believe in Jesus Christ. I guarantee you it had something to do with hearing his word where Christ was offered freely to you. James here is calling you to meekly receive that which brought you into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, that which is able to save your soul. The nerve of him, right? How can he expect me to submit to something which can save me completely? This is not a burdensome commandment but is a wonderful one. It's like being commanded to take a soothing drink of water. Yet for some reason, our hearts are not inclined to this. We tend to naturally recoil from it. Now, if you had a life-threatening disease and a doctor cured it, would you listen to what he had to say from then on about your health? Sure. Yet the truth is, you and I are likely less submitted to the Word of God than we should be. We rush through our devotions so that we can get on to the more important task of the day. We fidget and fuss during a sermon rather than eagerly eating up the proclamation of the Word. Or else we hold to ideas and ways of thinking about life, about the world, and about God that are less than biblical. Is this you? I know it is certainly me at times. What strange fool and foolish creatures we humans are. We have to be instructed and pleaded to seek after that which is best for us and instead run after that which could destroy us, that which produces death. But here's the hard truth. As a Christian, you are a student of this book. There is no way around that. 
If you claim to be a follower of Christ, yet you have nothing to do with this book, maybe you should reevaluate yourself and your devotion. Here's what I want each of us to do in the upcoming week. Myself and everyone. Let us each take stock, earnest stock of our lives and our hearts. Consider where those remaining spots of resistance remain and where you may need to receive with meekness the word of God as it speaks to you. Consider those areas where you are talking far more than you are listening, both in your relationship with God and your relationship with others. Where the clamor of self and pride have control and where God's word may be kept out then I want you to consider what would it mean for you to receive with meekness the implanted word in this area. Here's a hint. It means to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. It means acting on what you hear and not just nodding your head in agreement or saying something like, I needed to hear that, or that gives me something to think about. Sure, say those things, but what, is that, what do you do after that? What good is acknowledging the truth of something if we don't act on it. Being a doer is how James will go on in the next, next section to describe the one who truly receives the word of God in meekness. They don't just hear it, but they hear it and they act on it. So once we have each pinpointed that area in our lives where uh, we need to work on, what do we do? Well, first off, I would suggest confession. Confessing it to him. Bring it to him. Ask him for the strength and grace to work in your life so that you are enabled to live more and more for yourself. Do you want to hear, do you want to experience the joy of an answered prayer? This is a prayer that you can be certain God will answer. Listen to these words of Christ. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? God will surely give his people help to submit to him in Christ Jesus. He will pour out his Spirit abundantly on his people because he delights that we should be brought closer to him. He wants us to be closer to him and will delight to make each of us more and more into the disciples who are meek and who are uh, mild in our obedience to him. And this also can involve seeking the help of other people. I encourage you to find someone to help you in this, to find accountability, for we are not on our own in this life. God has given us each other just as much as he has given us his spirit. So what a wonderful thing to be called to be a disciple of Jesus. To be called to meekly submit to him who saves your soul, who has saved your soul. What a wonderful commandment. Is it so unreasonable that we should submit to him who has poured out his love on us in Jesus Christ? It is a wonderful commandment. It is a wonderful call here. And this is the call to the life of the Christian. To submit to him who loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And if you are listening to this and you are living completely in your sin and for yourself and your own way without any consideration of Christ or his word, if you have never submitted yourself to God or his word, I want to ask you a question. 
Can you save your soul? Can you do what the Word of God here has promised to do for those who submit to it? Will you stand proudly on the day of judgment and declare with your head lifted up high, I did it my way? Do you think that the sovereign God who created the universe, who demands the service and obedience of all, will be impressed? No, he will not be impressed. He will look on the one who says this and rampant wickedness and their filthiness and will be disgusted. But thanks be to God that he is far more gracious, far more slow to anger than you and I ever will be. He even now offers you cleansing and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And all it takes is to submit yourself to him, to humbly and meekly receive that which is able to save your soul, to believe the gospel, and to come to Jesus for forgiveness and cleansing and salvation. And again I ask, is that so unreasonable? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, you have poured out your Spirit on your people. You have poured out your love on us in Jesus Christ. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would all treasure your word for the gift that it is, that we would all delight in it more and more, and that we would be willing to meekly submit ourselves to that which is able to save us, that, so that we would live lives to your glory and full of grace, and for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, in his name I pray. Amen.